Are you ready for an open discussion with the best of the best and the best of what's next? Welcome to the Tony D'Urso Show. Join in on a great conversation today with some of the world's great influencers as they showcase great advice and techniques that made them the game changers they are today. Now, here's Tony D'Urso. Welcome. I'm your host, Tony D'Urso. We interview world-class influencers, celebrities, and elite entrepreneurs. And I thank you for joining us. We broadcast every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific on Voice America's Influencers Channel. And you can listen to all of our shows on your Android or Apple device. Go to TonyDurso.com slash mobile and get the app. TonyDurso.com slash mobile. Today's show is with Mark Zaslov and Howard Kaplan, Emmy winner and spy novelist. All right. Here's some info on Mark Zaslov. He's a two-time Emmy winner, recipient of the Humanities Prize, and he creates content for all the major studios, Disney, Universal, Paramount, Warner Brothers. Welcome to the show, Mark. It's so great to have you. Thanks, Tony. It's great to be here. Mark, I always have an extra pleasure in speaking with an author, and in this case, a screenwriter, an Emmy Award winner, a director, producer, it goes on and on. I am amazed. The honor is mine to have you. Such a privilege. And for our audience, I guess let's start here. First things first, Mark, if you could all tell us, how did it all start for you? What's your backstory? Ah, backstory. Well, I started writing, well, even before that, the family is pretty creative. My father's an animator and a fine artist. He was head of drawing at Otis Art Institute. My Mother, aside from being a therapist, taught music. I have a sister who's a photographer, another a classical singer, an opera singer. And so I had to pick something they weren't doing. So around ninth grade, I uh, picked writing. Tenth grade, I had a great English teacher who said I was a good writer. And I did not believe her, of course. And uh, then I went to Berkeley in astrophysics and was writing a novel at the same time and writing screenplays with a buddy over the summers and decided to stick with writing. It was more fun. Wise choice. Look at where it landed you. <laughs> well, you could argue the other way, too. Who knows? Alternate universe. True, true, true. And I do understand that you're very good at astrophotography, if I said that right. Yeah. Ever since I was a kid, I, I liked telescopes and used to do that as a kid and then uh, eventually got out of the amateur side of it, went to school for the professional side. And then uh, a few years ago, I got back into it. So I go up to the mountaintops once a month, weather permitting and uh, freeze or heat up depending and uh, take pictures. Very cool stuff. Mark, back to Hollywood just a little bit and a part of your backstory you are a two-time Emmy Award winner. Could you tell us what those Emmys are for? Uh, those Emmys were for uh, Disney cartoon New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. And there was Emmys and a Humanitas Prize and a bunch of other things in New York that I don't remember because they never sent me there for those. And I was fortunate enough to uh, have a great show with great people, and uh, we did pretty good. I'm very impressed. And again, I want to accent this because I don't want to gloss over it. You won the Humanitas or is it Humanities Prize? A Humanitas Prize. It's for, I think, uplifting human something or other in television and movies. And the best part, and I wanted to get it <laughs> ahead of time, uh, is they give you money for the prize. So I was like young and wanted box and it was something to do. So I was fortunate enough again on that one. That's very impressive because when you think about writing uplifting human values in television and movies, you think, is that even happen today? Is that even possible? And yet it does happen and here it is. <laughs> yeah, it was a rather interesting group. There were some interesting movies that were up and things. It, it, there's more than you think, surprisingly. And they're good programs and, and good movies when you look at them. And yeah, I would love to know a little bit more about this because in checking out your online bio... The way you got started in your authorship here is your bio says one day you got fed up of being told what to do, I guess, what to do in script writing. And what's interesting to me, Mark, is that with perhaps a great number of people, while they're trying to get into that industry, you're getting out 
I'd like you to tell us and maybe take us into that world a little bit and explain why it's perhaps, oh, not the piece of cake or the glamorous profession that we think it is, or is it? It's, it's what you make of it. I started out as a prose guy, and I was, always thought I'd write scripts to sort of fund my novel writing. And I got sidetracked by Ferraris and Scotch and other fun things. And so I kind of got away from the prose after a while because it was just fun and people were paying me money and they were being nice to me. And it was kind of great. And, and Hollywood's a wonderful experience at times, but it's a team sport. No matter what you see on the screen, television or movies, it takes a lot of people. And everybody has their input. And even if you're just the writer, your vision is never going to be the same. And if you're a writer, director, producer, it's still going to be dependent upon actors and your cinematographer. And so it's fun, but it's not yours in the end. And then that's not including the professional part where everybody's giving you notes. And the thing that I got frustrated with is not so much the notes and even not that it isn't completely mine, but there's a structure. There's a particular structure to script writing. And if you're doing a movie, it's 90 to 100 pages, and it's got a first act, a longer second act, and then a third act. And the climax is here, and the plot points are there. And it's, it's a little like doing a mathematical formula. And I was just getting frustrated by the structure, and I got tired. I mean, I've done hundreds of produced hours of you know, film, TV, that kind of stuff. And after a while, I just was like, I had no freedom. And so I had done prose and it had been a long time because I was trying to be, you know, like great American novel when I was young. And I was reading a bunch of, what was it? It was Robert Cray, Janet Ivanovich and Carl Hyacin. And I was like, wait a second, I like these books. And they're well-written, and I just thought, why don't I do one of these? And next thing I knew, I did this novel. Very fascinating. I'm going to ask you a couple questions about that. But one thing just struck me as you were talking about this, and I would love it if you could give the insider point of view as a professional, well-heeled scriptwriter. <laughs> perhaps that's not the right word, but you'll understand. I like that. Oh, well, you're very welcome. As when I read a fiction book, especially, and then I see the movie, it's always so different. And I would love to know, what's the challenge in holding true to a storyline? You know, and I'm not trying to find fault with any. They're great. You know, Lord of the Rings is a great case in point. It's very different from the actual storyline. And I understand there's a challenge. But could you perhaps give us and draw some parallels on why that is and, and how that works that it has to be changed? Well, I, I think the key to remember, there's a lot of reasons and people will say various things, but I've found that the, almost inevitably a novel is too long to turn into a good movie, simply by the fact that you don't have enough screen time. Most of the, I mean, Kipling may be the greatest writer for the movies. When you, when you think of Jungle Book and Kim and The Light That Failed and Captain's Crit, and they were all novella length, almost all of them. And when you look at the better uh, Stephen King things, they were the short stories. The plot in short stories and novellas are about the length a movie needs. Books become complicated. You have multiple viewpoints. But what's nice these days is it's become a little bit more normal to do television series based on books, be they miniseries like Lonesome Dove, which was a beautiful execution of that book, or The Happen Leonard, the series that came out, and they're doing a third season, I think, if not a fourth. I forget where they are with it. But, but with a television series, you have the time to expand on what a novel does. So I think the biggest thing is just length. You don't have enough time in a movie. I mean, you got 90 minutes. You just can't put in all the nuance and the multiple viewpoints and the differing plots. So you end up having to cut stuff out, which I think is insane. You know, because then it's like it's not the same thing no matter what you do. Or else just make it more movies. You know, Lord of the Rings could be 20 movies <laughs> or something like that. I think like that. totally. I, I think he did a great job with the first one, Fellowship of the Ring. I think absolutely, yeah. absolutely, absolutely, hands down, amazing. That first movie was brilliant. Yeah, that was. But then he started rewriting Tolkien, and I'm not always for that, but you got to do it better than the original writer, and I wasn't sure. 
at times he'd go off on tangents going, wait, why? You have this perfectly good plot going over here. Why not use that one? So it's always dependent. I'd stick to the books, but I guess, you know, it's hard. Like the Silmarillion, I don't know how you'd do that. True, true, true. Well, thanks. It was a good to get another point of view from someone who's in the rank and file and in the trenches doing it as to why and what challenges there are, what obstacles you face that it winds up not becoming per the actual book. I've actually heard some authors, not authors, some movie stars say how they've tried very hard to get it per the book. And I'm thinking, well, why is it so hard? Not being a scriptwriter myself, I now understand a little bit more of the challenges that face that. So I do appreciate that. And I have a burning question for you. Are you ready? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Mark, this is a burning question. When I went through everything for this, I was thinking, well, with the variety of work you've done for probably every genre from Disney to the, let's call it the darker side of life that I won't mention. Here's my burning question. With all you've done with, you know, this whole range of ability that you have, what made you take an IRS agent for a series of thriller novels? I mean, it works, but how did that come about? Well, there are two things. One, the inspiration came from an ex-father-in-law who was an IRS agent. And at some point, he told me some stories that whenever I hear something really truthful and interesting or just interesting, I'll like file it away in my brain somewhere. Sometimes I jot down notes, but you never know when a computer is going to crash. So, so I had that in the back of my mind as, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know IRS agents would go out and collect things you know, like be a bit of a SWAT squad and go in and collect things when people wouldn't pay. So that was one thing. And then he told me another story about an IRS agent who was doing a routine check on something and found some weird money, ended up being mob money and ended up being killed for it. So there were these two little stories I didn't know. And so when the time came to do this, and as I said, I wanted to do a fun one, I stumbled upon the IRS and I realized to do a really good series, a suspense or action series, it's hard to get a new career path because everybody's an ex, you know, a detective, an ex-detective, a secret service guy, an ex-secret service guy. Everybody's ex-military. It's an ex-detective who was an ex-secret service guy who's now <laughs> in the, you know, and, and oh, I know that movie. It li- <laughs> <laughs> but it limits your choices of stories. And when I stumbled upon the Mark Douglas character, it was like, wait a minute, the IRS. I can do rock and roll. I can do religion. I can do politics. I can do people who don't pay taxes, as we know, you know, who want to rebel against America because they feel it's, you know, patriotic duty. So I can do anything. Whereas an L.A. detective, which there are great L.A. detective series, but you're limited. And suddenly I went, I can do anything. This is fantastic. Very interesting. Well, let's get into this book, Mark, and I'd like you to take us in and tell us more about it. This is the Tony D'Urso Show. Just ahead, the chat continues with Mark Zaslov and Howard Kaplan, Emmy winner and spy novelist. But first, it's time for us to take a short break. See you back here in just a moment. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. Hey guys, the world just got cooler, or should I say neater, N-E-A-T. Do you have a small business, pay taxes, or need to record your expenses? Isn't that everybody in the world today? It's always been nearly impossible to be perfect on all record keeping. And now here's Neat at neat.com slash Tony. It's a software that's used by small business to better manage expenses and spending. First, They provide small businesses, accountants, bookkeepers, a cloud-based expense and document management system. You can scan your receipts, such as gas receipts, for example, or have it scan and pull receipts and invoices from your email. Neat. Yep, it integrates with your accountant accounting system like QuickBooks. Neat. Imagine never losing an expense and maximizing all your available deductions. Neat. If you have a business or work for anyone, you'll love the benefits NEAT has. I do. Actually, 
Anyone who has a lot of monthly business expenses would love this, such as independent consultants, small business owners, those with side gigs such as Etsy or Lyft Uber drivers and so forth. And it's a low-cost solution. And don't forget, disaster-proof because it's cloud-based. Neat. That saves a lot of time. This is a great way to make your tax preps even easier. Audit-proof your business. Capture and store critical documents in the cloud with bank-level security. Neat. Save time. Eliminate those onerous bookkeeping tasks so you can focus on growth. Neat. And I'll make it simpler. Get it for 30 days free. Check out neat.com slash Tony for your 30-day free trial. N-E-A-T dot com slash T-O-N-Y. Neat.com slash Tony. Tony. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You're listening to the Tony D'Urso Show with key influencers. We'd love to hear from you via email. Be sure to send questions and comments to Tony at TonyD'Urso.com. Now, back to Tony and his guests. All right, we're back on the Tony D'Urso Show. Today's show is with Mark Zaslov and Howard Kaplan, Emmy winner and spy novelist. Mark Zaslov, author of Death and Taxes, is a writer, director, producer of both live action and animated movies and television. He also writes short fiction and has served as a senior editor on various magazines. All right, and now back to the chat with Mark. How can an IRS agent be a badass? Because we all think today that a badass is a good guy in this day and age. Are you working to mold public opinion, make them look better? How do we get a badass IRS agent out of all this? Well, first off, when I saw that these agents can go out and do this, I was just having fun. And it turns out, since the book came out in June... I've had some IRS agents, uh, including one gentleman from Oregon who was really just a funny dude and a very nice guy who said, no, 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 I know these people. <laughs> and so it turns out they're crazed. I even had, I got audited once and had a very crazed but cool guy doing it. And he was like a rock and roller and, you know, he, he was in law school. And so I was like, all right, we don't suspect just how, you know, how much they do that. So I thought, oh, this, let me just go with what I like. And so I just, well, you know, my main character had certain capabilities and, you know, his friends were strange and he, there's an old guy, Harry, who's been around forever, who, you know, and they're all drinking it, you know, at the end of the day. And I went, oh, okay, this is a good group, you know, and then things happen and you realize that they're not just tough guys for show. They actually, you know, have hearts and, and can get the job done. So that's kind of where that came from. I see plutonium enriched cows mark how did you come up with this stuff and what is that anyway a cow bomb uh you gotta read the book but (laughs) it's got i mean i got a eunuch hitman named juju klondike and yes there's plutonium being smuggled in cows you don't want to know where they put it um you know there's a texas billionaire barbecue loving fetishist you know who when you go there has it's just a very, you know, a very strange situation and uh, Mongolian mob and they're run by women. And uh, my favorite character in the whole book is, is the main character discovers this dilapidated deathbed ex-Mexican police force drug sniffing dog who his girlfriend ends up adopting. And this dog is like, and his name is El Repollo, the cabbage. And there's a long story of why the dog got that name, but it includes a hundred cartel, you know, killers in a field of cabbage and only the dog comes out alive. So <laughs> and, it's my favorite and, character. And we're going to tell the audience, he's a gun swallowing dog. Yes, he does do that too. He's just <laughs> a way to disarm someone, including the person's arm. So, but he's this horrible old, it reminds me of my first dog, Elmer is where it came from. Who, uh, it's just, you know, this dog is just wheezing and disgusting. But when, you know, the chips are down, he smells, you know. <laughs> so that's, that's my favorite character in the book, probably. I love it. And I do understand that the audience, if they go to markzaslov.com, which I'll spell M A R K Z 
A-S-L-O-V-E, markzaslov.com. They can actually find out more about you, and of course, they can get the book. Thank you. Yes, they can, and see a really horrible picture of me, because I don't photograph well, but what can we do? And a very bloody cover of the book, Death and Taxes. I mean, you just, you can tell that there's a number of people that had their untimely end as a result of this. And who really wants to do their taxes, you know? So, you know there's blood involved. I remember from the, let's call it the old days in the early 1900s with the revenuers going out to collect and how that whole tax structure came in. Because I don't think taxes, the way it is, was for personal income tax, was something in the 1800s. This is right at the turn of the 20th century. It was something that was instituted and the people had to be indoctrinated and... There are lots of stories of revenuers going out to collect and so forth. But this doesn't happen back then, does it? No, no, no. This is modern day. And the whole IRS thing, I, I, I think that was 1913. Uh, yeah, right. 16th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution authorizing Congress to impose tax on income. So they didn't even start till then. And the revenuers were really going after taxes on uh, alcohol, if I recall. So right. distilleries and stuff like that, you know, illegal ones, and hence all the car chases. And that still goes on. And, um, but this is a group that'll, if you owe back taxes, this was the part I didn't know. And they can come and take, you know, like your car. They're, they're the government's, you know, collection agency, essentially, is what some of these guys do. Ouch. (laughs) That's all I can say. (laughs) Mark, for those who are aspiring to become a writer, we have them in our audience. Can we give them a path, give them some good advice and wisdom on how to be successful in this field? Successful or how to write better? (laughs) They're two different things. We'll give them both advice. (laughs) Successful is... Whatever goals you originally, well, successful, two, two things. One, whatever goals you originally have. If you want to be a science fiction writer or you want to be a, a movie writer or whatever, stick to your goals and try not to be steered away too much. If what you love is writing novels like me, I got sidetracked. I'm not unhappy I got sidetracked. Uh, and I learned a lot and I've done some good work perhaps. But coming back to prose was like coming back home. And, you know, so first do that. And second, learn to write truthfully, which is a complicated process, but that's a big deal. And then to be successful, read everything, watch every movie and television show you can, dissect things, and really hone your craft. It's not easy. I've written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things, and I'm still learning. Constantly. I understand. If that that. helps, I can. (laughs) Yes, that helps quite a lot. Thank you. And by the way, as we mentioned earlier, Death and Taxes is the first in a series. Can you give us a preview of what's to come? Uh, The second book is called Declare the Pennies. And our main characters are back. Mark Douglas has been uh, in the first book. His boss was killed, which is the main thrust of that book. Um, and so he's taken her place and now he has to deal with all the bureaucracy. And at the same time he gets, he thinks he's just dealing with a petty tax evasion, which is someone is declaring a Peruvian hairless dog as a dependent. But it turns out to be like a political nuclear bomb. When this liberal left animal left wing animal rights poster girl, her husband is fingered in the murder of a right-wing anti-choice bigwig. And it just becomes complicated because the alibi of a kiss cam at the Staples Center, and there's seven-foot-tall NBA starting centers who like to dress up like Russian women's Olympic gymnasts. There's a Swedish heavy metal folk band called Lobsters on Meth that has to do with it. A hemorrhoid sav tycoon with an itch in the worst possible way. 200 Nigerian social networking con men who all have the same name, Toots Lamore, and a partridge <laughs> in a pear tree, neither of which are tax deductible. And so there's a lot going on. 
plus an ex-girlfriend of his, his new girlfriend moving in and comp B armed exploding wombats. But that's just a little of what's going into it. Oh my goodness, Mark. I know I've said this before, but how do you come up with this stuff that is beyond inventive? This is the Tony D'Urso Show. Just ahead, the chat continues with Mark Zaslov and Howard Kaplan, Emmy winner and spy novelist. But first, it's time for us to take a short break. See you back here in just a moment. Change starts here. Change starts now. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. The Tony D'Urso Show is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with over 24,000 classes in business, marketing, technology, design, and more. You can take classes in social media, marketing, data science, web development, you name it, they've got it. Skillshare is there to help you learn and thrive. I want to learn how to better engage with you, my audience, and provide you what you want. The Skillshare classes can help me with that. Come on and join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for you, my listener. Get two months of Skillshare for just 99 cents. That's right. Skillshare is offering the Tony D'Urso Show listeners two months of unlimited access to over 24,000 classes for just 99 cents. Go to Skillshare.com slash Tony D. Again, Skillshare.com slash T-O-N-Y, D as in David. Go to Skillshare.com slash Tony D. Become a member of VoiceAmerica.com. It's easy and best of all, it's free. Start out by going to our homepage or any of our channels and click register at the top. Once you've created an account and signed in, you can create your own custom library, opt into our newsletter, search by show, host, guest, or topic of interest, or browse millions of hours of content across all of our Voice America radio channels. Membership gets you more. Visit voiceamerica.com today to get started and tailor the listening experience to your taste. Hear the stories. Be motivated. Be inspired. Join us today. Voice America Influencers. You're listening to The Tony D'Urso Show with key influencers. We'd love to hear from you via email. Be sure to send questions and comments to Tony at TonyD'Urso.com. Now, back to Tony and his guests. All right, we're back on The Tony D'Urso Show. Today's show is with Mark Zaslav and Howard Kaplan. Emmy winner and spy novelist. And now, back to the chat with our guests. Again, a lot of what I've done is, well, let's say a a good 30% of what I've done is family or children's work. And so you're not allowed to do any of this. I think it kind of just builds up and (laughs) I get to let loose, you know, because I can't say any of those words if I'm doing something, you know, for for Disney. So I I think it just, you know, kind of boils up. But that's the next in this series, and I'm working on a couple of other novels as well and whatever it is I'm doing in television or movies. Amazing. Well, knowing you from just this interview, I can already tell that you're going to come up with different genres, different items, different stories about very eclectic items. It's just fascinating, the mind of a writer here, and I appreciate you giving us a glimpse into your world, talking about your book. Once again, Mark Zaslov, Emmy Award winner and author of Death and Taxes. His website is markzaslov.com, M-A-R-K-Z-A-S-L-O-V-E.com. Did I get that right? Absolutely. You demand. Mark, thanks again for spending some time with us. Very, what's the word? Not inventive, creative, fun, adventurous. I love it. Thank you so much. Oh, Thank you, Tony. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And now we have Howard Kaplan join us. Howard Kaplan is a master spy novelist with one novel already a blockbuster movie, The Damascus Cover, which scooped over four awards so far. Welcome to the show, Howard. My pleasure. Great to be here. Howard, so great to have you. The last interview we did was so much fun. The Damascus Cover, and by the way, I've seen the preview, and I've just got to say right off the cuff, that movie is 
bad ass. Just love it. <laughs> Boy, you did some good work there, my friend. Well, we have some good actors. Jonathan Reese Myers, John Hurt. I was very lucky. Yeah, they did good. And I, I believe you have some more. We're going to talk about some of your books, your films, and things. But first things first, for some of the newer audience, Howard, I'd like to start here first. How did it all start for you? What's your backstory? The most interesting thing that happened to me is when I was in college, I got involved with smuggling manuscripts out of the Soviet Union from Moscow to London because the communists wanted their hands on it. And I brought some out on microfilm. And the second time I went to Russia when I was 22, I got arrested and I was interrogated for four days. But I have to say it was a very friendly interrogation. I got to take bathroom breaks. I got room service, was better service than in the restaurant. <laughs> uh, and then, but when they, when they expelled me at the end of four days, the sort of KGB guy came up to me in the departure lounge and he said, we better not see anything about this in print because if we do, we can find you anywhere in the world and next time we won't be so humanistic. I remember that word, humanistic. And I was 22, and I thought, oh, good, I should start writing about this. And that's where it started. <laughs> Howard, you're such a troublemaker. <laughs> well, you know, we didn't tell my parents. You know, we kept it a secret. I'm impressed at how you kept your cool on that. I mean, back then, the Cold War with Russians. And if they said to me back then, don't say anything about this because we'll find you. I mean, that's quite a chilling threat. <laughs> I don't know. I was young enough to, to be cocky. I don't know that I would have, but I must say, I've never gone back to Moscow since. Even really? with the new world, I don't want to take the chance. <laughs> the world isn't that changed. <laughs> That's amazing. Howard, there's so much to go here. I would like to know a little bit more about what, you know, you're this college student. You're a kid. You really haven't seen the world or understood what's going on. Why were you picked and or were you just a great, perfect cover to, to smuggle manuscripts and microfilm? I was on my junior year abroad in Jerusalem at the Hebrew University, and what they were doing was looking for American kids who could go to Moscow on their way home and look, you know, like they were just regular tourists. And I just, uh, my, my mother had been in a concentration camp. My mother had been in Auschwitz, survived, obviously, and I always felt the world didn't do enough to help those people world doesn't do enough to help a lot of people. We have the same terrible tragedy in Syria right now. And I decided I wanted to do something. And I got approached while a student to join a group of people who were training to go into Moscow. And I said, I, will, I want to do it. And I did. You're brave, Howard. Very brave. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. And here you are. You've written a number of novels. The, the one we just spoke about is Damascus Cover. And right. Is there any new news on that? And then we'll just kind of go over some of your other books as well. Uh, yes, the film is actually both available for rental in all the various rental and video on demand. And it's also on Hulu, November 21st. I'm not sure exactly when, you know, your show will air, but it sounds like around that time, maybe. Oh, uh, yes, this, so this very, will be out before then. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, you know, it's rentable now. And in fact, a cousin at a birthday party for my father for his 100th birthday on Sunday told me he just watched it on a plane. So it's findable. Uh, the book itself helps clarify the film. A lot of people have told me it makes the film clearer. It's available on ebooks, paperbacks, and on Audible. I got a big narrator for Audible. I have the most famous narrator, George Guidal, in narration. He's done more books than anyone. And someone just wrote me today, said they bought the Audible book because George Guidal was doing the narration. I don't know if they wanted the book or they just wanted him, but <laughs> it didn't matter to me. That is so cool. And once again, everyone, check out the book called The Damascus Cover and at least see the movie. Howard, how true is the movie to the book? How true is the story? Or are they very You know, different? it's changed somewhat. Part of the, and people have sort of a little bit of mixed feelings about that because the book is about a sort of aging spy 
who's a little bit, you know, at loose ends. In the book, he's in his mid-50s, late 50s, mid-50s. Well, because it's Hollywood, they cast Jonathan Reese Myers, who is 40 today. I think he was 38 when they started shooting. So it's a different concept. Now, he is a, both a fabulous human being, you know him from the Tudors, from Bendit Like Beckham, from Match Point, the Woody Allen film. Very passionate, but by being 15 years younger than the character in the book, it gave it a different flavor. So some things work better because of it. I think he has tremendous chemistry with the co-star, Olivia Thirlby, who was just in Chappaquiddick, this recent film. But it doesn't have the kind of meat in a certain way of the novel, but that's usually the case when books go to film, of the what an older man was feeling as he was falling apart. So there's some changes, but overall, I love the film and I love the book, so I'm a happy guy. Well, there you go. Now, this book is actually a series. We're going to talk about some of your other books, and correct me if I say the name incorrect. I'm going to try my shot. The hero of the story, the lead character, Shai Shaham. Right, that's perfect. Oh, very good. I've actually now written... Over a period of 25 or 30 years, three novels with the same two characters. They're all independent, meaning they're standalones in the lingo of the book business. You can read any of them. And it's with Shai Shaham, an Israeli spy, and you are certainly getting to Ramzi Awad, who is a Palestinian. And what I think this makes my books distinctive is that I'm getting very good reviews both in the Arab press and in the Israeli press and in the mainstream press because I'm very even-handed about showing who these people are, their strengths, their weaknesses, uh, without a bias towards one. And that's the hallmark of this work. Howard, I want to compare this for the audience so they have a good understanding. I know it's a very unique story. It's very different from just about anything that I've seen or read or watched out there. And this Shai Shaham, he's, well, he's a legendary Mossad field agent. He's, he's badass. Just so the audience understands, because when we think of a spy, of course, unfortunately, the stereotype is James Bond. So for the audience, can you separate him out? What's, what makes him different, better or worse, or well, weeks, weaknesses and strengths and so forth? I'll tell you, what, what the first thing that comes to mind when I say this is... All my spies are married and in, have families. They're not these loners who are, you know, sitting in a bar being hit on by the gangly, gorgeous, you know, Italian woman who's really a Russian spy. They're people who are struggling with both the Palestinians and the Israelis, how to have a marriage, how to have children, in some places, grandchildren. Ramsey Awad does not have children. It turns out that he and his wife are unable to. So I'm struggling more with how does a marriage and a family function when the husband is both gone so often and in such dangerous work and the wife often doesn't know where he is and is worried at what happens when they have children. So that, that would be kind of the hallmark in terms of his own personal characteristics. Shy is very obsessive. He used to smoke all the time, and he's kind of a tough guy. So when he decides not to smoke, for a year and a half, he carries around a pack of cigarettes in his pocket to show himself that he can get away with not smoking. He doesn't drink alcohol at all because as a youngster in university, he fell in love with a girl. She left. And he was drunk for a year, so now he doesn't drink. And these guys are more mental trackers and field agents and detectives and people who unthread a puzzle than they are guys getting in big fights. Although Shy secretly trains on the firing range and nobody knows it because he's a little overweight because he wants to be competitive, and in one of the books, To Destroy Jerusalem, it becomes very important. That's very interesting. You've taken a spy and made him very 
let's call it normal, where he can fit in and is unobtrusive. This is the Tony D'Urso Show. Just ahead, the chat continues with Howard Kaplan. But first, it's time for us to take a short break. See you back here in just a moment. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. Hey, check out my other great interviews at TonyDURSO.com or using your Android or iPhone, get the app at TonyDURSO.com slash mobile. That's TonyDURSO.com or slash mobile for the app. Thanks. You heard that a majority of businesses fail. Don't be a statistic. Get my book free, The Vision Map. Beat the odds for your business success. Get it free at TonyDURSO.com slash vision. And set up your own successful vision map. TonyDURSO.com slash vision. It's time to unlock some of the best-kept secrets in health, wealth, and happiness. Are you ready to live your life to the fullest and hear insider tips from today's experts? Then tune in to The Forbes Factor with celebrity TV host and inspirational icon, Forbes Riley. She's a best-selling author and TV fitness expert, and you know her from QVC and HSN. Now she brings her expert advice and guests to the Voice America Influencers Channel. Tune in live every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time for The Forbes Factor. We guarantee it will be the best hour of your week your favorite voice america talk radio network shows and hosts are in your car outdoors and wherever you need them to be listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market this is the voice america influencers channel be inspired You're listening to the Tony D'Urso Show with key influencers. We'd love to hear from you via email. Be sure to send questions and comments to Tony at TonyD'Urso.com. Now, back to Tony and his guests. All right, we're back on the Tony D'Urso Show. This segment of today's show is with Howard Kaplan. Howard lived in Israel and traveled extensively through Lebanon, Syria, and Egypt. At the age of 21, he was sent on a mission into the Soviet Union to smuggle a dissident's manuscript on microfilm to London. His first trip was a success. On his second trip, he was caught and interrogated. And now back to the chat with Howard. People wouldn't be able to put it together as opposed to the James Bond guy flying all over the world doing whatever. Yes, it's almost supposed to be the opposite, so that they will you know, blend in and people won't be stuck on an idea of who he is. And, and family, I guess, is an important notion to me, and I wanted to explore how these spies function in a family rather than alone, alone. That makes good sense. And I'm going to get back to the writing, but one thing in your updated bio that caught my attention, which I think is separate from your book writing that we're going to talk about in your books, you tutor young women writers in Gaza, is this a philanthropic? Yes, it actually Go ahead. turns out not to be separate from the book. In my new novel, The Spy's Gamble, which has Cheyenne Ramsey in 2016 and 2017, I'll tell you about it in the novel, then I'll tell you how I got to it. Ramsey is, in all the books, a famous Palestinian writer. So he's now retired. He's older, or they think he's retired. Shy needs help. So he goes to him, and Ramsey is teaching a course at UCLA. I use UCLA so I could walk around and describe it, because I'm here in Los Angeles. And Ramsey teaches a short story, that an actual real story that a young woman writer of mine in Gaza wrote about her experience of being landlocked in Gaza and never being able to leave and how her girlfriend got out to go to Jerusalem because she had a bad medical emergency and they couldn't treat it in Gaza. And in this modern world, 
The question is, how do I tutor these people? Over Skype. It's generally done over Facebook and Skype, and they send me drafts of stories. I edit them, then we talk, you know, on the phone or whatever you want to call it. It's not a telephone, over Skype. Then they rewrite them and they publish them. They have an organization called We Are Not Numbers. It's a Palestinian organization that puts tutors together with these young writers. I think the writers have to be under 30 because that's just their mandate to work with young people. And I have four or five of them who suddenly every once in a while I get an email or I get a, usually it's on Facebook. It's an instant, a message that says, I have a new story. Will you look at it? And it's a real delight that I was thrilled. And I got this woman's permission. Her name is Enos. She lives in Gaza City to use her real name and to use her real story. So she was excited. We were a little worried that a book wouldn't get to her, but I mailed it to her and she got it. That is so cool, Howard. And what is the purpose of this organization? Is it to place them, give them jobs, give them work? Where, well, where does it go? I think it's anything that can help with. For example, I had one student who was writing an application for a job with the International Red Cross, and she wanted me to look at the application and critique it. I think it's partly, too, greatly, to help to teach them to express the tragedy of their lives and the difficulty of what living in Gaza is like. Gaza is 25 miles long, five miles wide. You know, it's blockaded by the Israelis on the ocean, by the Egyptians on the south, and they can't get out. So what we're trying to teach them is to write without sloganeering, without, you know, using words like fascists and Zionists and whatever but just to express the experience of their life. What is it like for this girl who dreams to go to Jerusalem and her girlfriend gets to go? And then she sees another thing. She's on Facebook and she has some friends who are Americans who are suddenly in the West Bank in Bethlehem traveling around. And they come from wherever, Los Angeles or Washington. And here she is, you know, 50 miles away, and she's not allowed to go. What is that like for her? So that's what we're trying to express. I think it's a little political, but it's also greatly personal for these people to get their thoughts and feelings out. I like that, Howard. It gives them hope, and it gives them purpose, gives them fulfillment. And, And if you put it there, put it there. We can change the world based on what we, the people, or the majority of the people really want. We can make changes. And so that's really good. Very cool on that. No, I think it's great. And as I say, you can, they really get the idea that they have to drop this dramatic political language in favor of personal expression, what it really feels like for them. So you can do a lot of work, you know, there's a lot of improvement in their work. One of them wants to apply for the Iowa Writers Program, uh, Writers Workshop, and I'll write recommendations. You know, I'm happy to do that. I like that. Very cool, Howard. Now, earlier, just earlier, we mentioned a couple of books. So for our audience, we have the Damascus cover. We talked about that. What's the next book that's out? Okay, the, the three books that are that comprise a kind of independent series, the first one is Bullets of Palestine. The second one is called To Destroy Jerusalem. And the third one is the one we mentioned, The Spies Gamble. They were not published in that order, but that's the order chronologically. I published Bullets of Palestine first, which is the oldest. Then The Spies Gamble, which is current, you know, current time. Then I went back and wrote another book that's more, even more recent called To Destroy Jerusalem, and set it in between the other two books. It's like a prequel to The Spies Gamble, and that's the one, uh, that's the To Destroy Jerusalem book. It's interesting uh, that, you know, you asked about titles. The original title of that book was The 11th Plague. My literary agent and my, one of my good friends said they liked that title, and I told my son, who's 25, he says, Dad, everybody in my generation is going to fall asleep at that title. 
because <laughs> um, uh, I came up with this to destroy Jerusalem. And he says, that's what you should use, because that's what the book's about, and that's what will get attention. So I went with my son's instinct. Interesting. Howard, is that Jerusalem story something set in the future, the past, or modern times? No, the past. It's set actually in 1990, because in the late 80s, there was what's called the First Intifada, the first Palestinian uprising in Israel, where there was a general strike for actually almost seven years in the West Bank. Highly organized committees, uh, medical committees, public service. And I'd been in Israel at that time, and I had notebooks of notes about that strike. So I went back, since I had Cheyenne Ramsey in first 1987 and then 2017, and I went back and I chose 1990 because of the color of this first and very powerful Palestinian uprising called the First Intifada. As I say, and those books can be read in any order. They're all completely separate stories, those three. And we have the same key characters in those three stories. Right, in those three stories, not in the Damascus cover. The only overriding character that goes through all the books, although not exactly all of them, is the character that John Hurt plays in the Damascus cover film, the head of the Israeli Secret Service, but he has passed away by the time the spies gamble comes about. And I think he's already put out to pasture by to destroy Jerusalem, but he's a central character in Bullets of Palestine. But unfortunately, we've lost John Hurt, so if they ever fill them, it'll be like the Harry Potter movies. Some of the actors died, they had to replace them. Yeah, understood. Howard, some authors go for incredible realism. They take a real events, real places, and of course, they'll put their fictional characters in. How much would you say is true of your stories, or is there even a way to gauge the realism as opposed to the fiction? Yes. I, you know, it's a really good question because I'm one of those people who does that a lot. And in fact, as some people were reading The Spies Gamble, they said, these events just happened. I'm sure, I don't know if the ink's dried yet. So I often moved characters, particularly in Bullets of Palestine and in, particularly in The Spies Gamble, through actual events. And to destroy Jerusalem, I'm going through actual events of the Palestinian uprising, but the story is less so. But I like to do that. I know people seem to like it too. There's a lot of history in my books. You know, I, I like to try to give it, spoon feed it to people in a way that's palatable, but those are some of the things that, that people like. But again, particularly the spies gamble, it's like, well, even in Bullets of Palestine, one of the Arab reviewers said, there's so much realism in it, it's hard to remember that it's a book of fiction. So I like that. It's, it's a big part of what I do. That's very cool. And I think that's part of why so many people can zone into your book, because there's so much realism in there that can just, I, I really like that. That's very cool on that. And the latest one, The Spies Gamble, is that the one of about a possible, there's a nuke that's stolen or missing or whatever? No, that's, that that's actually to destroy Jerusalem. So that's what the potential destruction of Jerusalem is. And that book has the theft of nuclear weapons, and it also has, I haven't actually publicized this yet, but it has a very large subplot of Christian evangelicals who are in Jerusalem, and some of them are proselytizing and what it's like for them to proselytize, and what the whole Christian evangelical feeling is about Israel. I was fortunate, I taught creative writing at UCLA, and I had, for like a long time, I had in my class a Christian evangelical, very interesting guy, who had, I remember this, Bible verses on his business card. And I've lost the business card. I'm terribly upset about that because it was fun. And I sat with him. We had lunch a few times, and he taught me a lot of things that went into To Destroy Jerusalem about that book. Interesting. Um, well, I hope he hears this interview and, or, and finds out about your right. book and it, reaches back out to you. 
It does happen. The Spies Gamble plot is about the Israelis getting a new stealth submarine in Norfolk, Virginia, and the prime minister, who's sort of a right-winger, going on a celebratory ride, you know, as they take over the stealth submarine, and then the submarine disappears. And so the novel is really about trying to find the submarine and the prime minister and not knowing who captured it. It's a stealth sub, so they can't find it too easily. Is it the Russians who wanted to see the American technology? Is it the Russians and the Palestinians working together because it's a right-wing prime minister? Or is it somebody else? So that's part of the mystery of the spies gamble. And the title refers to the gamble for peace, that somebody is taking a gamble to make this whole thing work out in a way that furthers peace in the region. More than that, I can't reveal. Very interesting. Well, audience, you're just going to have to wait for that book and check it out. And I understand all your books can be, people can find out about your books at howardkaplanauthor.com. Is that right? That's exactly right. And Howard, if someone wants to reach out to you and whatever, can they contact you through that site? You know, I'm not sure. Supposedly, I have a contact through that site, but I've never had anybody contact me. The easiest way to contact me is through Facebook. If you message me on Facebook, I answer, whoever it is, because it's easy and I'm at the computer all the time. So that's what I would recommend to get the quickest response from me. And they can find you on Facebook at Howard Kaplan, K-A-P-L-A-N? Exactly. And I have two pages. I have a regular page, and I also a Howard Kaplan author page. But you can find me also, if you look up any of the books on Amazon, they're direct links, I think, to the Facebook page, too. So it's not hard to find me there, even though the name's a little bit common. Very good. Very good. Well, I think that's going to be the way people are going to reach out to you. And I hope that person that you lost touch with comes back around. Meanwhile, Howard, you're very successful at being a writer and author. You're mentoring people in Gaza. What would you say, what advice can you give those aspiring to write fiction as well as nonfiction? Is there any, any wisdom or guidance that you can give them? Something I see a lot is these days, and I wrote a piece about this for a writing magazine, that young writers are spending too much time, particularly on Twitter, because they have the idea that before even they're published or ready, they need to start to create a following. And I think that's a mistake. I think that followings are hard to come by, and they're not going to come from tweeting. I think I ended that piece by saying, write more and tweet less. <laughs> There's a book that I would recommend called Writing to Sell by Scott Meredith, who was a famous literary agent in the 50s and 60s. He was Norman Mailer, an Arthur C. Clarke's agent. And he says, when we say writing to sell, we're not talking about gimmicks. We're talking about how to construct a plot and a story that works. He decided to write the book after he got so many first novels he couldn't sell, he decided to write this book about how to write a novel. And I read it before I wrote the Damascus cover, and it was enormously helpful. Well, very good. Thank you so much for that advice. Very, very appreciated. Once again, Howard Kaplan, you're the author of Damascus cover, To Destroy Jerusalem, and The Spies Gamble. And again, that Damascus cover, that is so good. I highly recommend people to check that out. Thanks so much, Tony. Howard, once again, thank you. And we look forward to more spine-tingling, chilling thrillers, thrillers, <laughs> spy thrillers from you. <laughs> okay, well, I'll try to behave myself. All right. All right. Thank you again. And for my amazing audience, thanks so much for listening. Remember, success awaits those who persevere and remain steadfast despite the odds. Be righteous. Join me on the next episode of The Tony D'Urso Show. We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of The Tony D'Urso Show with his key influencers. 
Be sure to tune in again next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel.